again. It's good to be seen by you today. I just wanted to uh, take a short moment just to invite you to be a part of what we're doing live here at, at, at Northview. Um, we've got all sorts of different venues and zones and opportunities for you to worship with us, both at our Mission Campus and at our Downs Road Campus. Um, we just want uh, to get as many people back to church live as we can. This is great, right? The video, it's great. It's great that we can connect with each other this way, but it's not as great as being able to gather together, see each other's faces, sing together, and uh, encourage one another. So I just want to personally invite you to be a part of it. I'm preaching lots of times during those weekends, and so uh, love to see you, love to interact with you. Um, Northview.org, you can find out all you need to know on our website. I, uh, I used to be a tennis player. Uh, that might surprise you. I've, I think I've said that before. I'm not, I'm not shaped like a tennis player. It was always kind of a joke to uh, the other guys on our team that I somehow ended up in tennis. I just was always pretty good at racket sports. And uh, as a tennis player, one of the things that made me good uh, at it was not obviously my physical ability. It was, it was more to do with my mind. Um, I, I was pretty good at strategy, and uh, that strategy really was focused on one thing, and that was I tried to figure out what the one thing that my opponent was bad at, and then I would just pummel that thing. So if, uh, if my opponent was not, didn't have a good backhand, which was usually the case, most people's backhand is not as good as their forehand. So if my opponent had a bad backhand, I would just hit, back, hit to his backhand all day long. I might not even hit one ball to his forehand. Backhand, 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 backhand. Eventually the guy would hit it in the net or he'd hit a real soft shot to the net and I would, I I would put it away. Uh, sometimes the guy didn't want to come to the net, so I just hit drop shot after drop shot after drop shot, and so he'd come up to the net. You just figure out what it is that they're not good at, and you and you and you pummel that thing. You just uh, take advantage of that thing. That's actually the way that most good coaches, most good strategists in, in sports, do well. Um, I do know that my, my son's involved, he's a, he's a pitcher in baseball, and this is the way that pitchers succeed, is that they, uh, they focus on the, the weaknesses of the batter, you know? F further on in baseball you get, the more you get like these little charts that they'll give you ahead of time. They'll show the batter's uh, heat map, like where, where in the zone is he good at, at, at hitting and where is he not? And so if you're a pitcher, you're like, well, if he doesn't hit the low uh, fastball away, I'm just gonna throw low fastballs away all the time. Uh, I'm not going to throw it certainly in the high inside fastball that he likes to hit home runs off. So you figure out what they're weak at and you keep, you keep after that, that thing. Even as a hitter, you, you, you usually they pull pitchers out of games before the third time through the order. And the reason for that is because uh, the hitters have seen them twice before and have learned what their weaknesses are learned what the, the, the pitcher can do, and so they don't want to give them a third chance because usually around the third time they hit, hit, a lot of, hit a lot of the pitcher's pitches. The point is that knowledge of your opponent is essential to winning any game. So this is certainly the case with the enemy of our souls. We're in this sermon series on spiritual warfare, and so it uh, really is important for us to take some time and just think a little bit about what the Bible says about Satan, about the devil, and about his approach toward Christian people um, so that we can be prepared and we can know what kinds of things he's going to throw at us. What are, what are his weaknesses? What are the things that he's going to be going after in, in us regarding our weaknesses? The Bible actually has several things to say about this. So what I want to do is I want to give you five facts about the enemy of our souls. So basically, this is kind of a military intelligence briefing. 
you know, they were about to go out and uh, fly our planes to, to attack the enemy island or protect our island, whatever. And uh, we're sitting down in the briefing room and I'm gonna draw up for you, okay, so here's five things you need to know about the defenses of that island or these are five things you need to know about, you know, the way that the planes are gonna be flying in or what this enemy tends to do. So five facts about the enemy of our souls. Here's the first of them. He's adaptable. Satan is adaptable. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Um, since we're working with a little bit of military imagery, um, you know, there are different ways that you can fight a battle. One of the ways that you fight the battle is a full frontal assault. You just, you know, line your guys up and you go straight at them and you basically assume that you have more guys than they have and so as a result, you're gonna be able to outlast them or whatever. Um, this, is, this is power on power. You know, my strength against your strength and we'll see, see who's gonna win in the end. That's the way they do it a lot of times in the movie, battle, you know, front line against front line. But that's not the only way that you can try to, to fight a battle. The other way you can fight a battle is actually see if you can, I don't know, seed one of your people inside of the enemy's territory perhaps, or maybe get one of your people to work as a double agent, somebody who's, who's pretending to be on their side but is actually on your side. So you, you what we call subvert you know, you rot from within their, their military. There are lots of, there's, a, there's loud ways to fight a battle. There are quiet ways, subversive ways to fight battles. And Satan is, is, is like that. Um, he's not a one-trick pony. He uses various approaches to oppose God and his work. And you and I, when we think about Satan and the way that he opposes God's work, we usually do think about that, that, that front line against front line, you know, um, Power encounter is what we call it, kind of in theological terms, uh, where we, you see stuff in the Bible about, you know, Jesus goes to a, a location and there's a demon-possessed man there, and Jesus says to him, you know, demon, come out, and sends the demons into a bunch of pigs, and they run off the cliff. A power encounter, right? Jesus is more powerful in, in this face-to-face -face combat than the, than the demons are, than the enemy is. Um, the Apostle Paul, we read in the book of Acts, there's all sorts of examples of power encounters of places where Paul casts demons out of, a, out of a girl who's following him and keeps yelling, this is Paul, he's the servant of the Most High God, and he just gets sick of it and finally casts the demon out of her in Acts 16. So we, we, we think in, intuitively or instinctively that when we're talking about spiritual warfare, that's what we think about. But it's actually probably not the majority way that spiritual warfare takes place. So you say, well, okay, what, well, how does it take place? It certainly does take place like that, but there are other approaches the enemy takes. So 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, verse 3, and then verse 4, says, and even if our gospel is veiled, so the Apostle Paul speaking and talking about how it is that, uh, you know, some people don't come to faith in Christ when they preach the gospel to them, and he's trying to make sense of this. So the gospel is veiled for some people. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, now listen, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Satan is actively blinding the minds of people who don't believe. That's why when you try to share the gospel with people, they're like, eh, just not interested oftentimes. Um, there are various ways that Satan 
blinds people's minds. And one of the chief ways is through competing ideas. So you, you find that actually uh, 2 Corinthians 10. So the first one was 2 Corinthians 4. And then Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 10 the battle or how it is that we wage our, our war against the strongholds that Satan puts up. So you read in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. It's a lovely word, strongholds. It's basically a picture of a castle or some sort of fortress. And in those days, the way that they would uh, defeat fortresses, they had these massive catapults. And so the way you would demolish a stronghold, you put the big rock in the catapult and you'd, you'd launch the rock and it would you know, hopefully break down part of the wall. There were other ways to get through the wall of the fortress. You could dig under it or whatever, but the picture here is of just launching these rocks into the walls of the fortress. We demolish strongholds, and you think to yourself, okay, well, what is the stronghold? What is the, Paul's playing with this image, what, what exactly is the, is the stronghold? Well, verse five, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Look at, so you see the, the words there, uh, arguments, pretensions, thoughts. So that big fortress on the hill in Paul's image is ideas. Ideas against God. Ideas that are alien to him or are, are rebellious to God. So there are all sorts of worldviews that people have in the world that's, that preclude God, that, that get rid of God altogether. Ah, there's no such thing as God. We're born into this world and we're going to die and rot in the grave and that's all there is. Uh, there are, there are worldviews and philosophies that teach us to just enjoy the moment without any thought to the future, to pleasure ourselves with goods and uh, good things like, like, you know, money and games and sexual activity and all that kind of stuff. These, these are all ideas that the good life is held through these things. These are the fortresses that, that, that Paul says we demolish. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. These things are raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to the obedience in Christ. So, so my point here is that, is that we, spiritual warfare is more than casting out demons. It's, it's apologetics. You know, you know what I mean? Apologetics, when, when you give an argument for the faith to somebody who denies the faith or disagrees with it. Their eyes are blinded. You're trying to give them light through the arguments for the resurrection of Jesus or for why it is that their worldview doesn't hold water. God is, this world has blinded their minds. And so you're trying to open their minds through the power of Christ and the truth of the, of the gospel. Um, spiritual warfare is preaching and teaching. Believe it or not, what I'm doing right now is, is spiritual warfare. I am attacking the enemy's ground. He doesn't want you to know how he operates. So when I preach or, or when we teach each other what it is that the scriptures say, we see we're taking every thought out in the culture captive to the obedience of Christ. We're comparing it to what God says and we're saying this, what God says is true and what out there is, is untrue. So we were correct and rebuke and we train people in righteousness and that's all spiritual warfare. You know, I get asked from time to time, especially from people who uh, have either traveled to 
uh, to uh, Africa or have spent some time in places like Africa or South America. They come back and they always have stories about power encounters, about, you know, uh, you know hey, I, we were in a village and, and this uh, demon-possessed person came up and they were acting in these crazy ways. And so I was with a missionary and they had a 45-minute conversation with this person. At the end, there was a, a demon cast out of them. And they're like, why in the world does that sort of thing not happen in Abbotsford, in Vancouver, or in, you know, anywhere in the West? Well, I usually respond by saying, well, first of all, you need to know it does happen in the West. It's just not the major way that Satan is approaching his work in the West. It's the major way that he approaches it oftentimes in those, in those other places, but it's not the major way he approaches it here. His tactics are different here. See, he's adaptable. And he's adapted to our culture. And so how does, how does Satan get after us? Well, he, he tries to convince people of a particular worldview that gets rid of God. He tries to get you addicted to, to money. He tries to make you think that the good life is not held by obeying Christ and his word, but ultimately the good life is held by you obeying you and pursuing your desires and your ends. And why would you give up your autonomy to serve Jesus and follow his way? There is no afterlife anyway. You see all the ideas that are in the West? And so if Satan can do that without you even knowing that he's real, why in the world would he... Why in the world would he stick his head up and try to convince you that, hey, I'm actually real and uh, here's a big power encounter and uh, God is actually more powerful than me? Why wouldn't he just do it this, this, the quieter way? Why wouldn't he just send his enemies into the camp and rot it from within? And that's really what's happened, I think, in the West. As we're facing spiritual warfare, it's just not as loud as it's elsewhere. And that's because Satan is adaptable. He's trying to bind us with thoughts and arguments raised up against the knowledge of God. You say, what kind of arguments? Well, that God doesn't like you. That God is displeased with Christian. God is displeased with you. He may have accepted you because he has to due to the faith you have in Christ, but he's not really excited about it. You know, he, maybe he thought you were going to be a better Christian to begin with. You got in and he's realized you're not very good at it. And so he's like, well, I wish we could get a different player. Maybe we can make a trade. Those sorts of ideas go through our heads all the time. God can't be trusted, we say, or we think. Maybe it's not something we say out loud, but God can't be trusted because my life didn't go the way I wanted to in the past. And so therefore, I need to take control of things in the present. That's spiritual warfare. That's Satan and his minions trying to convince you of the very thing that Eve was convinced of in the Garden of Eden. Ah, you don't want to follow God in his ways. Did God really say that? Ah, I don't think he probably did. You should do your own thing. You should pursue money. That's going to really make you happy. How much? A little bit more. And when you have a little bit more and you're not happy, keep pursuing it. It's just because you don't have the right things yet or the right wife yet or right husband. The one you've got is not a good idea anyway. You know that. When you got into it, you thought it was good, but now you don't. See the ideas? See the ideas? They're all raised up against the knowledge of God. And the responsibility that we have as Christians is to take those thoughts captive, to demolish those fortresses, those ideas, by comparing them to Scripture and saying, no, that's not true. That's not right. And I'm not listening to you, Satan. That's, that's our spiritual warfare in the present time. So first, you need to know that he's adaptable, that Satan is adaptable. But second, he's a liar. Uh, this is probably one of the most 
attested truths in the Bible about Satan. So in John 8, 44, there's a bunch of Jewish religious leaders who are talking to Jesus and a number of Jewish people as well, and they have said they believe in him, but they don't, they don't really believe in him. And they, th they think they do, but Jesus is saying, no, you actually don't because you guys are trying to kill me. <laughs> and so what do we call somebody who's trying to kill me? So in John 8, 44, uh, Jesus says, you, people who believe in me, you, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires, specifically to kill him. See, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. There you have it straight. From the very beginning, he's, he's a liar. He shades the truth, as we say. You say, well, give me an example of where he shaded the truth. All right, well, one of the most famous passages in the scriptures is actually the, the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3. Now, we're going to go into this passage next week in more detail because it's, it's really rich with things that we can learn about how we can fight our adversary and understand how he operates. But I just want to read to you verses 1 to 4 of Genesis 3 so that you can see just on the with a cursory look, for, with just a, an initial look, how it is that he goes about lying or shading the truth. So Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, who Satan was embodying at that point, and serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I got to stop real quickly. If you go back a few verses into Genesis chapter 2, you realize that when God told Adam the rules for the garden, his emphasis was on everything you can eat. You can have any of these trees out here, just that one over in the corner, the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't you can't don't eat from that one, but all the other trees, look at the acres and acres of trees that you can eat from. All different kinds, Adam. Just that one in the corner. So the emphasis was on the freedom and on the provision and on the largesse, largesse, the amount that they could eat. But when Satan comes along in the serpent, he says, again, uh, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see the shading of the truth? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. So she repeats what, repeats what God said to Adam. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You see that she's buying into it, yeah? You must not touch it. He didn't say that, but she's starting to say, yeah, actually, God is keeping this one tree away from us. I wonder why. In fact, he even said you don't even, can't even touch it, which he didn't say. Oh, you won't certainly die, says the serpent to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, he's trying to keep something from you. Don't you understand that God, this God who pretends to be so good, if you really were good, he'd let you have all the trees. But he's trying to hold back that one because he doesn't want you to have it. He's not actually good. He's trying to hold something back. You see the lie? See the lie? He's playing on the truth of the statement, but he's shading it to such a degree that it sounds kind of like the original, but it's not really. It's a half-truth, which equals, of course, a whole lie. Satan shades the truth. 
He loves the bait and switch. This is how he gets people to engage in sin. Do you see how beautiful and wonderful this sin is? Look how shiny and lovely it is. If you partake of it, your life will be great. Can't you picture your life being great? Think of the feelings you'll have when you partake of that particular sin. Come, enjoy it. The good life is held when you partake of that sin. And then when you get into it, it's like a rotting carcass. It's like a, an apple that you, you look so good on the outside, but when you bite it, it's all mushy and wormy inside. That's, that's the bait and switch. He makes it look great on the outside, but on the inside, it only leads to your death. There's an old story that I'm sure if you've been around the church for a long time, preachers love to tell it. I don't know if it's real, probably not. But it's basically about some, some, uh, some Inuit people uh, who were having trouble with wolves. And so the way that they would kill the wolves quietly, instead of going out and trying to shoot them, is the way that they would go out and kill the wolves was that they would put a, um, a knife in the snow that was soaked in, in blood. They would actually, by soaked, I mean like they would put it, um, you know, freeze blood around it, around this knife. And so when the wolves would come around, they would start licking the knife because it's made blood, and they would love the blood. They would love the blood and love the blood and keep licking and licking and licking, and eventually their, their tongue would cut, and they wouldn't know it because they would still be tasting the blood. The problem is the blood they're tasting is just their own blood. And eventually they die of blood loss, killing themselves because they were so enticed by this good tasting blood when eventually it, it ruined them. And that's really a good picture, I think, for what it is that, that uh, we're dealing with when it comes to Satan. Uh, it begins, sin begins delightfully. He's enticing us by saying, look, this is going to be the greatest experience that you've had. Look at the lovely blood on, this, on the knife. That look, look at this great sexual sin. Look at this fantastic, you know, obsession with money or whatever it is. Power, greed, bitterness. Look at how great it's going to be. You don't want to let go of that bitterness. What will you have left if you forgive people? But then when you get into it, you realize that the very thing that he has promised will give you life is actually sucking the life from you. It's bleeding you out. That's the bait and switch. He's a liar. He's a liar, and you need to know that he's a liar. Don't believe the hype of the sin. It's a dead lie. So he's adaptable. He's a liar. Here's the third one, three of five. He appears different than expected. Um, so when you think about Satan in our culture, what are the kinds of images that come to your mind? Uh, we, of course, know, you know, there's the angel and the demon on the shoulders, and one is wearing white and a robe and a little halo, and then the other one is, you know, uh, he's got a little pitchfork, and he's got a little red suit, and his, his horns are coming out. This is what, if you, you know, early Halloween days, they, if somebody wanted to dress like the devil, they would dress in, you know, a, a red outfit with a pitchfork and a little pointy tail. That's, that's what Satan is like, people would think. Or in more modern days, uh, I think in movies and stuff, Satan would be portrayed as this massive monster, right? So like uh, the, the Stranger Things devil dogs or um, the great underworld uh, hideous monster, kind of like Godzilla but mean. Um, that kind of thing, right? Leathery skin, spits acid, that, that kind of stuff. And so that if you were to see Satan, you'd be like, ooh! 
disgusting. Or you'd see him and laugh because he's got his little pitchfork there. Those are the common pictures that we have. We say stuff like, well, we'll recognize him ultimately when we see him. And yet this is not actually the way the scriptures talk about Satan. So here, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Paul's talking about some of the false teachers in their church and telling the church in Corinth, you need, to, you need to stay away from these people. They look a particular way, but they're not what they seem to be. For such people, he says, are false apostles, deceitful workers. They masquerade, it's a great word, masquerade as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. See, the, the false teachers look a particular way, but they aren't really that way. They are masquerading. So you know the masquerade ball. They, they put their outfit on, and you think that they're this wonderful, you know, handsome prince, but then you take the, 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 the mask off, and what you realize is, ooh, they're so different than what they portrayed themselves to be. That's what they... So he says that's what Satan does. No wonder that they act that way. That's exactly the way Satan comes. He's, he's an angel of light. He's fantastic looking. He's, he's beautiful. You know, imagine if you wanted to sell uh, your car, and then let's imagine your car is really, really horrible, and you didn't have any scruples. <laughs> So you're going to sell your car. It's got all sorts of problems. It leaks oil, uh, barely has a transmission left. You know, it's got all sorts of difficulties. But when, when you sell the car, one of the things you do is you go and detail it. You get the entire you know, outside and inside looking good. You try to buff out any of the scratches. You go to the store and get the little, the little paint that, oh, that, that covers over all the blemishes on the car. You make it smell nice. You put one of those little trees inside so it smells lovely instead of smelling like, you know, your stank exercise clothes that have been sitting in it for however long. You dress it up. You put a, a mask on it, basically. And then when the person comes along and they want to, they are interested in it, you emphasize all the positive things. Now, you're not going to tell them the thing backfires every time, every time, you know, you start it when it's under, you know, five degrees Celsius. You're not going to emphasize that, hey, by the way, you might want to get like a whole gallon, you know, gallons and gallons of oil because uh, it's going to leak like crazy. You don't say those things to the person. You emphasize the positive aspects of that car. You masquerade. You act trustworthy, even though you're not. You don't have a lot of scruples. You just want to get rid of the car so you can have, have the money from it. That's the way Satan operates. He's trying to, he's trying to you know, he appears as the really trustworthy guy, not, not the sleazy car salesman and, you know, he's got his shirt down and chain going, how you doing? He doesn't appear that way. He appears as the, as the guy that you would really trust, the beautiful person that you would really want to buy from. That's the way he works. Like basically the way, the way he operates is that he, Satan wants to steal the gospel away from anybody who hears it. We, in the parable of the soils, you get this image where the, the farmer throws this seed and some of it lands on a path. And it says the devil comes and takes it away. That's what he wants to do. Anytime the gospel is preached, he wants to take that gospel and rip it away immediately so that it can't root in anyone's life. But some of us believe you know, if the gospel takes root in the life of a person, then Satan probably, he just forgets about it and he leaves. But that's not the case. That's not the case at all. In fact, he keeps pursuing people. He doesn't just give up and say, well, you know, they believe the gospel. I guess 
I guess I'm done. He still pursues those who've believed the gospel. If it's received, he doesn't give up. There's that old book uh, that maybe you've read from C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It's, a, it's made up, but it's basically um, uh, letters from Uncle Wormwood, who's a high-ranking demon, to his nephew, sorry, Uncle, um, Uncle Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood, who's a lower-ranking demon, and Screwtape is a higher-ranking demon. He's giving him advice on how it is that you can tempt your client, he says, who is a Christian, away from their Christianity. And that's actually probably true. That doesn't mean Satan and his minions don't just like pack it in because you're a Christian. They want to lead you away. They want to make it so that you give up on your Christianity. So he tempts Christians. And the way he does that, usually through slick, false teachers. So they, they abandon, Christians abandon their true devotion to God. So, so if you're taking the scripture seriously and you recognize that the means by which Satan does this is usually through false teaching, through believable uh, false teaching, but that's, you know, that twists the truth a little bit, you'll be on your guard. You'll be on your guard. You'll root yourself in what the scriptures teach. You'll learn what the Bible has to say. You'll study good theology so that you can sniff. You can sniff when that salesman comes around and is trying to give you his, his stank car. So he's adaptable, he's a liar, he appears different than expected, he's an accuser, and that's the fourth one. You know, in much of the Bible, Satan is called an adversary. In fact, that's what his word means in Hebrew. Uh, he's, an, he's an adversary. It's a, the, the, much of the Bible he's portrayed kind of as a prosecuting attorney. So you imagine a court scene and uh, God is sitting in the judge's chair and prosecuting you is Satan, and his argument before God is that this person should be condemned because of their actions. They're rotten, no good, I have all sorts of evidence to show you, so you, judge, because you're righteous, need to condemn them. You need to condemn them. And so you have passages that actually speak along these lines. Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. He didn't even use Satan's name. He just calls him the, the accuser. Well, what, what does that look like, that kind of accusing? Well, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, you, you get, it's the very beginning of the book, what you get is this interesting scene. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. He's blameless and he's upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And here's, here's Satan's response. Oh, does God... Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he'll surely curse you to your face. Oh, the only reason that he follows you anyway is because you've made his life easy. You coddled him, God. Prosecuting attorney. The reason he's... He's not given up on you is simply because you've made life simple for him and provided him all sorts of wealth and good things. But if I can take those things away, you'll see, you'll see. You hear the accusation? 
you're the accusation. So the question then becomes like, well, how does God then respond to the adversary's arguments? I mean, when you think about this, I, there's a modern term that we use these days, uh, and it's, it's unfortunate for women named Karen, but there's become this thing known as if you're a, you're a Karen, <laughs> if you are the police woman of all behavior. And we, you know, we use that language now. So if you're in a store and somebody says you're walking the wrong way against the little arrows, they say, well, I'm going to go tell the management about you. Or if you're working in the store and somebody, it, you know, you have a disagreement with one of the, one of the people who are there and she says, listen, I need to speak to your manager. You know, we call that a Karen these days. They're just people who are always sticklers for the rules and looking to make sure that everyone obeys the rules and you need to do this and do that and do this and do that. And ugh. It's very difficult to live around people like that and because you're always, you're always doing something wrong. Honestly, the way that Satan is portrayed, in, especially in the Old Testament, he's like the world's first Karen. That's what he does. He just, he just points out all the errors that you've made and points out all the reasons why you've made those errors. And if, the, if things were different, you, you would be doing those errors as well. It's like, like in Job. He's, he's the world's first Karen. And how does he respond? How, do, how does God then, when he hears these accusations, when God the manager gets, gets you know, the Karen says, your employee didn't do things right, what, what, does, he, what does he say? Because there's truth in the accusation. You didn't do it right. And Satan's just saying, hey, you need to judge him. The rules are the rules are the rules. You need to judge him. You need to judge her. What's his response? 1 John 2, verse 1. My dear children, writes John, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Isn't that a lovely image? So here you're in your courtroom and what you've got is God sitting in the judge's chair and but you have Satan accusing and saying, you need to judge, you need to judge. But you and I have an advocate. We have a defense attorney who's standing up on our behalf and saying, yes, that's true. He should be judged. She should be judged. They wronged. But I'm the righteous one and by faith in me, my righteousness becomes theirs. So they've already been judged, God the Father, you judge them in me, and now I'm advocating on their behalf and saying to you that righteousness has already been, justice has already been done. My righteousness stands in their place. So Satan, shut up. It's lovely. It's absolutely lovely. Satan can yell and scream and critique and Karen all he wants. But the truth is that you and I are in Christ. And as a result... We are free from condemnation. And that's really the way we should respond to the same kind of accusations of the enemy. I'm going to tell you that, that if you're a Christian for any length of time, eventually you will have hear the whispers of your enemy in your ear. And he will be saying things to you like, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You failed. Look at all the things that you touched. They turn to, they turn to dirt. Look at your marriage, it's not what you should be. Look at your parenting, it's not what it should be. Look at your, your approach toward your parents. Look at the way that you handle all of these different things. And you will look at that and you will agree. You'll say there's truth in that. I am not those things. And you'll start going down the spiral of feeling like you, you're nothing. And that's exactly what Satan wants, is you to crater in yourself. But you have to remember that Jesus is advocating on your behalf to God the Father 
And so you need to hear his advocation. You need to hear what he's saying to the Father, that no, those things all might be true, but they are in me. They are in me. And no matter how much the prosecuting attorney makes his argument, the defense attorney will always win on our behalf. You know, Martin Luther, there was an old story about how Martin Luther uh, supposedly used to have these battles with Satan in his, in a castle. In fact, I've got a picture of the Wartburg Castle here. This is where uh, Luther spent a good chunk of time. He wrote, he actually translated um, the New Testament in German here so that all the people could read, read it. He was holed up in, quite honestly, like the biggest quarantine ever. His life was at stake, and so he had to be in this castle for quite a long time, like years. And so he was in, a, in his room, in fact, in this castle. There's a, this is a picture that has uh, just been redone of what it, like you can go visit there today if you want to go to Wartburg, Germany. The old story is about this little stain that you can see maybe on this side of the picture. It's an ink stain on the side of the, of the, of the room that supposedly uh, Luther was having an argument with the devil so much because the devil would come and accuse him repeatedly that all the things that his enemies were saying about him were true that all the arguments they were making were, were just, and that Luther was nothing. He should just go and die. Luther said that he had these regular fights in his little room there with the devil himself. And one night, Luther apparently picked up his inkwell that he was writing the New Testament, or he's translating New Testament with, and he just threw it across the room at Satan, and it hit the wall. It's probably not a real story. probably didn't happen, but it does describe a little bit of the way that Luther approached these things. He recognized that he was always going to be accused, but he, you cannot give in to the accusation. You have to stand. You have to stand and hear the words of Jesus that say, there is no condemnation for those who are in me. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Satan's accusations don't matter anymore. I said there were five of these things you need to know. The last one is short. Satan's doomed. That's the thing you need to know. He's doomed. He's already been defeated at the cross, but he's doomed. Revelation 20, verse 10. This is the end of the book. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You ever won a big competition maybe with your team or... or your sport, you know, the pitcher, we talked about them from the beginning or the big tennis match that was on video. And it was a big comeback because the first part of the, of the game, you were really horrible. You went in a big hole. You, the other team was way up at halftime. And then you come back, though. You, you came back in the, in the second half and you won the victory in the most incredible way. And then you have a video of this because everybody wants to remember. It's one of the greatest victories in your life or in the life of your team. And so you go away and you have this, this video that you can access online. And you watch it. And guess what happens when you're watching this video? There's a smile on your face the entire time. Even when you're being horrible at the front end of it. You're still smiling. You're not afraid even though everything's going wrong and your team is losing terribly. And the reason that you're not afraid is because you know the second half is coming. You know the comeback has taken place. You're just putting up with all of the difficulty, all of the early watching, 
so that it sets the stage for the great comeback that you know is coming. Christian, don't you know that this is the way it is for us? We know that the comeback has happened. We know that the greatest victory we've ever experienced has actually taken place already. And it's just working. God is working it out in our lives and in, in, in this world. Satan will be defeated. He will be tormented day and night forever. And so he might bark and scream and yell. And you might start to shudder and be fearful. But there's no need for fear. There's no need for fear. You are re-watching a game that has already been won. You can giggle at the failure that you have and at the way the world is going haywire because ultimately it will be brought to full completion. The new heavens and new earth will come and Satan will be doomed. The victory is secure and the one who controls history is on our side. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and I'm thankful for just being able to jump around in scripture and to learn a little bit about our, our enemy. But ultimately, Father, the, the emphasis in all this is ultimately about you and about Christ, our Savior, and what he's done and is able to do on our behalf. We're so thankful for him. We did not come to him and convince him to love us. Uh, he loved us anyway. And it's because of his love that we've been called to be children of God and we have a glorious future. Help us to know that, to fight in the meantime, knowing the victory is coming. We pray in Jesus' name.